Amen. That was beautiful. To be fully known and fully loved. It's really the essence, the foundation of what I want to bring today. And it builds on last week what Hannah began on, which is grief and good grief from Psalm 13. Walter Brueggemann, who is a New, an Old Testament scholar, talks about these patterns through the almost 50 psalms of lament that move from an order of sorts. Life is going as we know it and as it should. And then there's a disorder. Something happens. And in every lament psalm, there's a disruption. Sometimes it's David writing, you know, again being hunted by King Saul. Something has entered in that has disordered the world. And all but two of those lament psalms climax with a reordering. A couple of them don't. They just stay disordered, which is good too. You know, God doesn't put a bright bow on everything. But many have made the case that no real change happens except for profound disorder. Something gets so disrupted Life is not the same in any way, shape, or form, and out of it comes transformation, comes a reordering. And we are experiencing, of course, globally a disruption, a disorder of something that none of us has ever seen. We've all had disorders in our lives, and many of us can say that, you know, out of that came something good, and and hopefully we've lived long enough to know that this will produce something, but not automatically. Every disorder doesn't end up in a positive reordering. But today I want to take us into a passage in the New Testament that shows God's great purpose and plan for disruption, not that he causes it, but what he wants to use to bring a reordering of our lives. So we don't waste this time that we're in. Uh, We don't want to experience it again, do we? And, you know, as Tom said, uh, it's been 10 weeks now. The last time I spoke at the journey was 10 weeks ago in Quinsigamon Village. First time I've been back in these uh, walls and watched every week as you are our service online. And... As I look back over 10 weeks in this, it's, you know, it's been all over the map for me. Every kind of emotion. Some days great, some days really not great at all. And I've gone back to some of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work on grief and dying. And she did her initial work with people who, who were dying in, in five stages of that process that people go through when they know they're dying. And, you know, denial... Anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I was fortunate that my mother, before she died, she, it wasn't sudden. She knew she was dying, and I watched those stages kind of play out. And, and the acceptance part was a, a beautiful component. And others who've worked with those in grief, who've walked with people who have died, They've said that it's similar stages, maybe not so much just linear, and that may be your case also. You felt depression, you've been angry, you've denied it, you've uh, bargained, you know, you've um, uh, accepted. 
and I think our slide I messed up on it. It's supposed to be acceptance at the end. We don't end in anger again, so thank God for that. Uh, and yet those who've looked at this from the place of where does power come out of it have added another stage to it, and that is a sixth stage of meaning. And it doesn't help to make that the first stage, as sometimes we do when somebody's suffering. We say, well, you know, somebody dies, and we say, well, God must have needed them more than you did, or everything happens for a reason, or um, at least we know where they are now, and they're well-intentioned trying to put meaning before this grief process. But when the grief process works, it doesn't just end with acceptance. And those who've studied uh, people who've gone through great grief and seen on the other side a meaning come out of it. Mothers against drunk driving. You know, the woman who lost a child to a drunk driver. Countless of prison ministries. People who have been in the worst and then God's called them back into that place again. Addicts who now are sponsors. And, you know, the part of the healing process is there's a greater meaning in this for me that God wants to turn this horrific thing and use it for good. And that's my prayer as we move beyond just grief today into the New Testament, that what is the greater meaning or a meaning that God may want to bring out of this? I want to read from 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4. I think it summarizes this process very powerfully. Praise be to the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that, and here's the meaning, we can comfort those of any trouble with the same comfort we ourselves have received from God. That word compassion literally means to, in the Latin to come alongside with pain. Passion means pain, you know, penthos. The passion of Christ is pain. That there is a coming alongside with pain for those who've been through pain. And that is the power of what Paul is saying here. With the comfort we ourselves have received, we are able to comfort others with that same comfort. And our greatest pain is often our deepest passion. Think about that. At the place of our greatest pain is often the place of our greatest passion. And the pain that we've been through uniquely qualifies us to walk with others who are in pain. And this isn't going to be our deepest pain, but it is a pain that we are in. And God doesn't waste it. You know, Richard Rohr said, uh, pain is maybe the most spiritual thing that there is. It'll either transform you or you'll transmit it. There's no other option. So we don't choose pain and suffering as it comes to us, but what we do with it, do we allow God to transform us or do we just transmit it to somebody else? Henry Nouwen wrote the book so many years ago, The Wounded Healer. It's, it's, it speaks for itself that because I've 
experienced a wound I can heal. And particularly those who I can relate to in the same sort of suffering. So what does that mean? I'll be able to help somebody else in the next 100-year pandemic? Hopefully not. We don't have to experience every kind of pain to relate to people in any kind of pain. We experience pain, and the work is that God uses it to transform us so that we can help others with whatever it says in 2 Corinthians 1, pain they may go through. And so today's passage is quite short, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And not to be overlooked that Paul writes this actually from prison. You know, it's a shelter in place for sure, isn't it? Not voluntary. And I can imagine that, you know, just as we're told, shelter in place, wait this out, it'll get better. He must have been tempted to just sort of think his life was on pause because after all, Paul was clearly called to be a church planter. He had done it all over the world, traveled some, they said, 10,000 miles and planted churches. And now he's stuck in a prison when he writes this letter. And you know, I can imagine that he would be telling his friends, you know, hey, do petitions, get me lawyers, let me out of here so I can get back to what it is that God's called me to do and to be. But that is not what he does, or we wouldn't have this letter of Romans. It says in, in Philippians chapter 1, I want you to know that actually what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. How? Well, it's become clear to the whole palace guard and to everyone here that I'm in chains for Christ, and because of my chains, others have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and boldly. What's happened to me is served to advance the gospel. And Paul didn't go on hold in prison. I was convicted when Tom spoke a couple of weeks ago about how we might enter this phase that we're in. And it is a phase, but he talked about 10 different ways to engage this current crisis that we're in, this suffering. And it, none of them are to wait it out. And you might wait out you know, going on vacation. You might wait out doing a lot of things. But God is not on hold, and he hasn't put us on hold. Apart from that, we wouldn't be reading 13 letters in the New Testament from prison. Paul said that it wasn't part of what he had envisioned, but God has used it to advance the gospel. In Romans chapter 5, then, I'm going to read. And it picks up at, you know, whenever we jump into a, a, a passage like this, you know, there's things that go before it, especially when it starts, therefore... Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul begins it, therefore, because the four chapters before is this global reach of God in this world and how he is working and what he's doing. And then Paul drills it down really deep. In fact, these first four verses really become a pivot to a practicality of my life, and it's a prologue to chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8 that culminate in 
Romans chapter 8. Therefore, you know, what can separate us from the love of God? Can anything, darkness, you know, heights, depths, demons, nothing can separate us. And this, though, I think is is the the key for us today to to move beyond just an acceptance, a a healthy grieving process to what does God want to reorder in our lives. And it begins with the song right before here that we are loved and known by God. And chapter 5, verse 1, speaks of who we are in that love. We have now peace with God. We have, in the present tense, gained access by faith into a grace in which we now stand. These are all current realities. We have been justified. Watch many the the Chinese uh, theologian says there are two big things we need to understand. One is our position in Christ. Who we already are, fully known and loved by God, accepted as much as we could ever be, couldn't be loved no matter how many great things we did or lose that love no matter how many terrible things we did. It begins in this place of uh, verses 1 and 2. We rejoice in this hope of the glory of God in which all of this is true and in which we stand. It is our position in God. And Paul goes through almost all of his letters spending at least as much time on who we are in Christ before he ever tells us what to do. All the songs we've sung this morning are, as I look back on them, they're standing in that reality of this is who I am and this is who he is. And where this will go in the next couple of verses is critical that we understand our position in Christ because we also have a condition in Christ. And that is that our lives, none of them hold up to who we really are. We live in doubt and fear and anxiety and we wander and sin, willful and, and things we leave out. That is the condition of our lives. And it was the condition of Paul as well when he talks about in Romans chapter 7, I do the things I don't and I don't do the things that I do. And God's purpose is to bring us into full alignment, our condition to match the position of where we rest and sit and stand in Him. And so here it is, verse 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 5. Not only so, but now we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, for we know that God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, it's not that God created these sufferings, but in this world we will suffer. God doesn't create pandemics, I don't believe, but in this world there are such things. And we don't escape them. And I don't know how many of you, like your job every day is actually to eliminate suffering in some way. It's a good thing when pain and suffering comes our way that we work to resolve it in some sort of a way. Some of us uh, you know, we're in 
relational problem resolving, or financial problems, or health problems, or computer problems. You know, problems aren't something to be typically rejoiced in. And so when Paul says rejoice in it, it means that some of those he's got another purpose for. It's interesting the word here, suffering. You know, there are computer problems and there are relational problems and God can use any particular thing. But this word, suffering, sometimes it's translated trials or problems. One place in 2 Corinthians 1, it's translated, is pressure. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. We were under, Paul says, such great pressure. That's the same Greek word. It was beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Wow. Have you been under that kind of pressure where you despaired even of life? You just couldn't, you didn't think you could breathe another breath. You couldn't go another moment, another day. And so Paul's not just talking about slight interruptions, but intense pressure. And he says, rejoice in these. And he's one, you know, when we read the litany of what he's gone through, we can say, well, I guess he knows. I haven't been through a fraction of what Paul has experienced. And how do we know when it's a, a pressure to embrace and when it's a pressure to avoid? Because typically things come to us and problems, we want to avoid them, if we can. It's like the guys came to the doctor and said, I broke my foot in two places. Well, then you should stay out of those two places. <laughs> avoid them when you can, right? Or sometimes it's ask God to remove them. Paul did. He had this thorn in his flesh, and he prayed three times for God to remove it. That's a good prayer. Why just stay in something? Everything that's bad isn't good. We ask him to remove it. And if, he does, if we can't avoid it and he doesn't remove it, we pray that God will change the obstacle, change that person. My spouse, my kids, my health, my boss. It's a good thing to pray like that. But some of those things God has a greater purpose for. And this is one of those. We're not able to avoid it. We're not able to remove it. We're not able to change it at this point. And sometimes God wants to use it to change us. And I remember when Hannah and I were living in a discipleship home with boys coming out of lockup from 1990 to 2000, and there were times in there, I just this was beyond my ability to endure, believe me. And I was always praying that God would remove one of them or change one of them or, or take one of them out. Or, and it took me quite a while into it before I, I shifted in my prayers to say, God, maybe you need to just change me. And, you know, that's a daring prayer. Change me. Use this to change me. And that's a prayer he loves to do. And, and he began to do that. He hasn't completed it, obviously. But Paul has this in 2 Corinthians 12, 
which is familiar to you when he has given that thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him, and three times pleaded for the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And this is the step I think Paul's speaking about when he says rejoice in your suffering. It takes us to another place. For suffering produces, it says, perseverance. When I am willing to embrace it and say, God, change me, use this to change me. Whatever is up in me is not satisfactory to him or to me my condition has not met my position in any way and this is revealing it and Paul says that now God does something with that suffering he produces in us perseverance sometimes translated patience sometimes endurance the Greek word is hupomone which literally uh, is an active overcoming it's bigger than just surviving it or, you know, well, he's a patient person. No, it's, it's bigger than that. Second uh, Corinthians uh, 4, 8, and 10 describe it. Paul says, when we are now hard-pressed on every side and yet are not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. It's an active overcoming that is equal or greater than the pressure upon us. The only thing, illustration I can think of is, is scuba diving. Some of you uh, have done scuba diving. And so if, if you understand how that works is you have a regulator which regulates the pressure of the air that you breathe at different levels uh, uh, underwater. And so... You know, if, if you breathed air at the surface and then just went all the way down where the pressure is so great uh, around you, that air, your lungs would collapse. And so the key they tell us when we scuba dive is keep breathing. Well, you think, well, that's not such a hard thing to remember. But sometimes people who are taking pictures and they're down at a deep level, you know, when you take a picture, you hold your breath and they're taking pictures there and they're holding their breath. And what's happening is they breathe in pressure into their lungs through the regulator at a very low depth, and now as they're coming up, the pressure around them is less, so their lungs are expanding. And I always had this picture, if I held my breath too long, my lungs would explode, you know? And that's the idea, that at every pressure we go, there's a regulator that regulates the air that we take in that's equal to the pressure around us. This is what hupomone is. We are pressed in on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. That's what perseverance is. That there is something when I, when I will embrace and step into this and say, God, change me through this. We see him begin to do it, and suffering produces perseverance. Hopamone. It is only produced in direct contact with the pressure that's being produced upon us. And then he doesn't just stop there. He says, 
then also this perseverance produces character. Character. Dokami. It's the literal world word for sterling silver. Character. Sterling silver. Metal that's passed through fire so all of the impurities are burned away. You know, think about that image. Job says it in 23.10, When he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. It's a crucible. That the moment I come in Christ, I have this position that is completely arrived with God. But my condition, I carry a lot of other stuff too. A lot of self-centeredness and selfishness and deceit and all of that. And so suffering is a crucible that heats up, and it doesn't add to us, it removes the impurities. A chunk of coal, it may look like, but it's gold within there, and it's not revealed until the fire of a crucible that burns away all of the dross, all the impurities, and then what's left is this character, this dokami, this refined silver or gold. And, you know, when you find somebody who you say this person is really has character, well, they've been through some things, haven't they? And there's a, a, a fullness, and it doesn't get there any other way. This is God's way of moving us and bringing us into the image of Christ. It doesn't happen just like that. But He's faithful And he takes us through these processes and he burns away all of this uh, impurity. And what remains, it says that the, 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 the silversmith can see his own reflection when he looks into it, into the, into the dross. And that is our greatest hope, isn't it? Paul ends this all with saying... Um, his character will produce hope. And hope will never disappoint us. For God has poured out His love into, his heart, into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. So I, I want to invite you to just 10 weeks into this whole process, that we're all in together to shift in the way that you're seeing it. In addition to praying for our leaders who make decisions and cures and vaccines and asking God to save those who are sick and hurting and all of that, in addition to plead with God to change me, to change you, there are some things that he may only be able to do through this. You're being detoxed. I'm being detoxed from all the busyness, all the things in my life that have kept me, you know, this is unique. And God has a unique way of using pain to produce perseverance and character and hope. And why waste this one, this unique crucible? And he's doing it with his whole body worldwide. And I said in the beginning that 
no real change comes apart from real disruption. Disorder. A reorder comes out of that. And God is reordering his church. It seems quite obvious. We can't see it, but what can we do? We can enter in humbly, surrendering to him and saying, God, use this to change me. I just read as a closing quote from Franciscan priest Richard Rohr. He said, when we finally allow life to take us through the Paschal mystery of the passion, death, and resurrection, the season we've just been in, at the other side of it we will be transformed. And now we'll have found the capacity to hold the pain, not to fear it or to hate it or to project it on other people. For actually it's really God in us holding that pain. For he alone can absorb it, forgive it, and resolve it. And we will know it's his grace working in us when we no longer need to hate or punish others, even ourselves. And then we will be free. Let's pray. God, all this is possible because of your great love for us. You are the potter. We are the clay. You're the master. We're the servant. Matter of fact, you say that we are pots, jars of clay, able to hold such treasures. Treasures like Paul did, suffering, pain, like we all hold in this world. And as you want to use us to touch others in those places, to transform them as well, we say, Lord, don't let this pass by. We surrender to you. We give ourselves to you. We ask that you would turn beauty out of ashes, that you will reveal treasure out of lumps of coal, that you will bring the divine power and purpose out of human wreckage, even in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.